Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 13th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Michael Collins's Intelligence War. Before we talk about Michael Collins, we will start with our Making History segment. This is a 5-15 to 15 minute segment in which I highlight ways you can help make history. Last week, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by the police, and so far three people have been killed by paramilitary units while pr- protesting police violence. It has never been more important than now to call your mayor and city council and demand they defund the police. The police have proven time and again that they are failing their communities and need to be rethought. If you're in Chicago, call Mayor Lightfoot and your alderman and demand they pass CPAC now. CPAC is a Civilian Police Accountability Council that will create an elected committee with power over the handling of the police and the police budget. Previous methods of reform haven't worked in the past, and it's stupid to think they'll work now. The police need to answer to the citizens, not the mayor or city council, who clearly don't care about the community. Then call your senators and House representatives and demand they support the BREATHE Act, which will defund police and establish a reparations program for people harmed by the police and criminal system. DeJoy is still Postmaster General, which is unacceptable. Please call your representatives and demand they impeach DeJoy and pass the Delivering for America Act, which will provide additional funding for the post office and reverse all changes DeJoy has made and prevent him from making any further changes until after the election. Finally, call the USPS Board of Governors and demand they fire the Postmaster General and undo what he's done. Additionally, please plan to vote as soon as possible. Don't wait until November 3rd. In Chicago, early voting starts October 19th. Fill out your ballot as soon as you get it and either put it in the mail or take it to a secure drop box at one of the early voting locations. And if you can, volunteer to be a poll poll worker. We're facing about a 250,000 deficit when it comes to poll workers, and without them, polling places will be closed, making it even harder for people to vote. And now we can turn our attention to Michael Collins. Michael Collins was killed almost a year, 100 years ago, on August 22, 1922, by anti-treaty forces. Since this weekend marks the anniversary of that grim event, I thought we'd spend today talking about Michael Collins and his intelligence war against the British. Collins is one of the most famous figures from the Irish War for Independence. He was born in Cork, worked in England as a clerk before returning to Ireland to join the IRB and take part in Easter Rising. He was Joseph Plunkett's aide-de-camp and wasn't impressed by Pierce and the planning of the Rising, but found inspiration in men like James Connolly. After the Irish surrendered, the British separated the troops into those who were the ring leaders and who were most likely to be executed, and those who'd be imprisoned and serve lesser sentences. Collins was at risk of being marked for execution, but someone called his name, and he moved into the other group to identify the speaker. So instead of being killed, he is imprisoned in Frondosh instead. It is in Frondosh where his reputation is formed. He organized the prisoners, became their spokesman, and coordinated protests and programs of non-cooperation with the prison authorities. He also built a cadre of men who would later serve as members of the IRB and IRA executives. After being released, Collins dedicated himself to rebuilding the IRB and Irish volunteers. He would gain legitimacy when Kathleen Clark, the widow of Tom Clark and former president of the IRB, named Collins secretary to the National Aid and Volunteers Dependent Fund. He would join Sinn Féin, becoming part of their executive and director of organization for the Irish volunteers. 
He spent most of 1917-1918 campaigning for Sinn Féin and won a MP seat for Cork. He tried to warn de Valera and the others of the German plot, but they ignored him and were arrested. Hollins and a handful of others evaded arrest and concentrated on forming the doll and breaking Dev out of jail. While the first doll met, Collins and Bolin were breaking De Valera out of prison, which we discussed in our sixth episode, Anglo-Irish War 1919. When De Valera formed his cabinet, he named Collins Minister of Finance, making him in charge of the National Loan. The National Loan was a bond scheme that allowed fellow Irish people to fund the IRA. It's estimated they raised £400,000, but Collins would constantly complain that the donations were not consistent, and some loan agents were not as effective as they could be. In addition to being a finance minister, Collins also replaced Tom Ash as president of the IRB, after Ash died in prison from force feeding, and director of intelligence for the IRA. He also shared the role director of organization and adjutant general, and worked closely with IRA chief of staff Richard Mulcahy. Together they would train, organize, and attempt to enforce a strategy onto the IRA. When de Valera went to America, he named Arthur Griffith as a stand-in president, and Griffith seems to have relied heavily on Collins. Collins and Mulcahy already had firm control over the IRA's military strategy, effectively icing Broda out, but their positions within the Dahl and Dev's cabinet also gave them access to domains that technically weren't theirs. This led to conflict with men like Kaffel Broda, who feared that the army was exceeding their authority, and that Collins was using the IRA and the IRB, a secret oath-bound society, to solidify his own power over Ireland. We've talked about this conflict in many episodes, but if you want to know more, check out our 8th episode, The Anglo-Irish War in 1921, and our 10th episode, Richard Mulcahy and the Irish War for Independence. Finally, Collins, with help from Mulcahy and Dick McKee, created an expansive intelligence network and a cadre of assassins known as the Squad. The Squad seems to have been Dick McKee's idea and was formed incrementally from 1919 to the end of the war. The members were handpicked by Collins, Mulcahy, McKee, and Mick McDonald. It started with four members and eventually grew to a consistent 12, earning the nickname the Twelve Apostles. The original members were Jim Slatery, Patty Daly, Frank Serene, Ben Barrett, Joe Leonard, Pat McCree, Bill Stapleton, Joe Dolan, Tom Keel, Vinnie Byrne, and Charles Dalton. By the end of the war, at least 20 men had served in the ranks one way or another, and included men such as Dan Breen, Sean Treacy, Emmett Dalton, Sean Doyle, and Joe McGinnis. Most of the original members were in their teens or early 20s, single and came from middle-class backgrounds. Each man had a 38 caliber revolver and were paid four pounds a week. While they answered to Collins directly and protected many of his intelligence operations, they were also responsible for assassinations of enemy agents vehicle hijackings, raids, kidnappings, jailbreaks, and protecting senior officials. They became experts at employing aliases, disguises, and developed building cover. It seems that Mick McDonald was in charge of the squad until 1920 when Paddy Daly took over. Their first, their first mission was the assassination of Dublin Metropolitan Police Detective Sergeant Patrick Smith. Smith had provided evidence against Pyrrhus Balesley, despite being warned not to. So Collins sent Jim Slatery, Tom Keogh, Thomas Ennis, and Mitt Kennedy to kill him. They tried to in mid-July, but failed, and they would try again on July 30th, chasing him into his house and shooting him four times, but Smith lived for another five weeks. The British responded by banning Sinn Féin and Common Navon. Dublin police raided Sinn Féin headquarters on September 12th. Collins was in the building at the time, but managed to bluff his way out of arrest. 
The leader of the raid was Daniel Hoey. The squad killed him shortly after. He was our second victim, and he would be followed by a third, John Barton. Barton had been in charge of investigating the murder of Smith and Hoey. According to J.B.E. Hiddle, author of Michael Collins and the Intelligence War, Barton did not die right away, but laid in the gutter asking, what did I do, until he died. While most people know about the squad, Collins' greatest intelligence achievement was the network of spies he created. Collins was the director of intelligence, and his chief executive was Liam Tobin, responsible for handling many of Collins' spies. He was in charge of managing the information they provided and creating files on the people they marked for assassination. Collins was also able to use the IRB to build an intelligence staff and network. The IRB had networks in the U.S. and England, and Sam McGuire, an IRB man, created a small intelligence staff within London that reported to Collins via merchants, longshoremen, and railway employees. The IRB slash IRA had also infiltrated the post office and the dot and railway unions. Collins had a network of spies that infiltrated almost every level of the British administration. They can be broken up into two categories, double agents and women. Collins had double agents in all levels of the police department. In the G Division, he had Ned Broy, Joe Kavanaugh, James McNamara, and David Nelligen. Ned Broy was a sergeant and clerk in the G Division, the intelligence branch of the Dublin Metropolitan Police Department. He warned Collins of the German plot and spent the war passing copies of reports to Collins. He even smuggled him into G divisions and archives, allowing Collins to identify G-men, six of whom would be killed by the IRA. He was arrested in 1921 and sent to Arbor Hill, Dublin's equivalent of the Tower of London. They could not break Broy out of jail, so Collins intimidated the prosecutor and Broy was never put on trial. However, he was trapped in prison until the end of the war, ending his usefulness as a spy. Joe Cavanaugh, an elderly sergeant who was sympathetic to the participants of Easter Rising and whispered words of encouragement to the men as they were arrested. He also warned Collins about the German plot, confirming Boy's information, and became the first double agent officially welcomed by Collins. Cavanaugh would die in 1920, but not before recruiting his replacement, James McNamara. James McNamara would take over from where Cavanaugh left off, smuggling reports to Collins and assisting in identifying new targets for the IRA. He would be dismissed from the DMP in 1921, although no reason or formal charges were brought against him. Afterwards, he would join the IRA and participate in some squad operations. David Nelligen is almost as famous as Ned Broy. He joined the DMP in 1917, resigned, but then rejoined after agreeing to be a spy for Collins. He would later be recruited by MI5 and was able to pass to Collins their passwords and identify their agents. Of the women who worked for slash with him, there was Nancy O'Brien, who was actually Collins's own second cousin. She was assigned to Colonial Undersecretary James McMahon's office and was in charge of decoding messages. She'd be an irreplaceable spy for Collins, often hiding in the bathroom during lunchtime to copy messages for him. Once when she was traveling to court to attend her father's funeral, Collins asked her to smuggle a load of guns to an IRA unit out there. She even had a policeman help her load the case with the guns onto the train for her. Lily Marin was a typist in the castle and served as a spy and would recreate reports for Collins. Evelyn Lawless was one of Collins' secretaries before joining a covenant in late 1920. Patricia Hoy was another secretary who, during a police raid, had her mother faked a heart attack, called another Republican, Kathleen Lynn, and slipped her a note to get, Collin to, get to Collins, warning him of the raid. Eileen McGreen, Mauve McGarry, and Nora O'Keefe let Collins and other members of the IRA use their houses and restaurants as offices slash meeting places. 
Dr. Bridget Lines Thornton served as a courier for Collins to Lawnford and Galway, carrying documents and weapons. She also went to Mountjoy Prison many times to help coordinate Sean McEwen's prison escape, even though the escape never came to fruition. During the Civil War, she would be commissioned in the medical services of the National Army, being the only woman to serve in the Army at the time. Molly O'Reilly worked at the Hibernian United Services Club and spied on the British officers who frequented the establishment. By the time the war was over, she identified 30 to 35 officers and provided their personal information, including addresses, to Peter Clancy, who passed that information to Collins. Since Dublin was the center for the IRA's GHQ and the Dáil executive, Collins and Mulcahy knew they had to neutralize all RIC and G Division men within the city. To do this, Collins had Boy smuggle him into the G Division archives, where he made a list of several G men and RIC men, many who would later end up as targets of the IRA. The doll was not yet ready to sanction assassinations in early 1919, so Collins and his crew sent letters of intimidation to all detectives warning them of the dangers of resisting the IRA. Once Dev left for America, the letters turned into assassination, and this, combined with Sinn Féin's strategy of authorization and the IRA's pressure on RIC units in the countryside, broke morale. The British had their hands tied. The RIC was proving itself ineffective, but the army could not intervene because of the Defense of the Realm Act, which limited military assistance in civilian matters. They tried banning Sinn Féin, as well as the Gaelic lead, but that did nothing. Lord French, the military governor of Ireland, reshuffled commanders of the RICs, appointing T.J. Smith as commissioner of the Belfast Police, Inspector W.C. Forbes Redmond as assistant commissioner of the DMP, and Alan Bell as a low-profile intelligence advisor. Together, they decided that, to quote from the report, an organized conspiracy of murder, outrage, and intimidation has existed for some time past. Dublin City is storm center, mainspring of it all. We are included to think that the shootings of a few would-be assassins would have an excellent effect. Up to the present time, they've escaped with impunity. We think that this should be tried as soon as possible. This was followed with Redmond becoming new chief of G Division. This report was followed by the IRA's attempt to ambush Lord French's motorcade. They failed to kill him, but he wrote, Our secret service is simply non-existent. When masquerades for such a service is nothing but a delusion and a snare. The DMP are absolutely demoralized, and the RIC will, will be in the same case very soon if we do not quickly set our house in order. The British sent the Black and Tans in March 1920 and the Auxiliaries in July 1920 to bolster the RIC forces. We've discussed their influence on the conflict in our podcast episodes on the Anglo-Irish War, and we just published a blog post about those units as well. In terms of intelligence, the beginning of 1920 opened with the IRA burning down three to 400 RIC barracks and opening the Dáil courts to undermine British civil authority. The army, unable to directly interfere, tried to help by developing the intelligence structure of army command to make up for the police deficiencies. However, to properly spy in the IRA, the army needed to recruit native Irishmen or train their own soldiers to pass as Irish. Additionally, they had little to no information on any of the IRA operatives. So they were literally starting from scratch, whereas Collins and the IRA had already built their files in 1919, if not earlier. Collins knew the British were trying to track them down. When Redmond was appointed, Collins sent Frank Thornton to Belfast, where he was smuggled into the file room and gathered information on Redmond, including a photo and his officers. Additionally, James McNamara, one of Collins' double agents, was assigned as Redmond's guide and assistant and clerk. Collins wasn't the only one who had double agents. One such man, Harry Quinn, tried to spy for both Collins and the British. Quinn was an ex-British Army non-commissioned officer who was a POW during World War I and joined Casement's Irish Brigade that was being raised to support Easter Rising. 
After the war, he traveled to Ireland and tried his luck on espionage. He was the first recruit by the IRA as a training officer. When he refused to, when they refused to recognize his talents, he went to G Division, who were more accepting of him. Unfortunately for him, Roy was the typist during his initial interview with the castle authorities and passed the information to Collins. Collins tried to use Quinn to ambush O'Brien, but that failed. Now Quinn was suspected by both the IRA and the DMP. Quinn went to court and bragged about his association with the IRA. He was executed by the court city IRA, acting on their own initiative, not the first time the court IRA would execute someone without orders. The British tried to infiltrate the IRA of one of their own officers, Fergus Brian Mully. Mully had better luck than Quinn, getting to meet men such as Liam Tobin, Bat O'Connell, one of Collins's closest friends, and Frank Thornton. However, after he failed to help them ambush British intelligence officer Hill Dillon, and asked for names of prominent Sinn Féin and Dahl members to pass to his handlers to justify his work, the IRA decided to execute him. They shot him outside of Wicklow Hotel on March 25, 1920. The one double agent that came closest to surely hurting Collins's operation was Jack Byrne, who went by the name of John Jameson. Jameson was an old pro at espionage, having served in India before the Great War and did some work in the Mediterranean during the war and had helped penetrate police unions during the London Metropolitan Police Strike. Jameson impressed the IRA men he met and convinced Collins to meet with him. He and Collins met a few times in the late 1919s and, and into 1920, and seems to have won over his trust to the point that Collins promised to introduce him to Broda and Mulcahy. However, Liam Tobin never trusted Jameson, and his suspicions were confirmed by James McNamara. However, Jameson screwed himself over when he brought guns to Tom Cullen and watched Cullen hide the weapons. That night, the police raided the location and found nothing. Then McNamara heard Redmond complain that the DMP couldn't find Collins, but a new man who had just came here was able to get an audience with him within three days. The IRA responded quickly and ruthlessly. First, they targeted Redmond, ambushing him outside his flat on January 24th, shooting him through the forehead. While they were still dealing with Jameson, Alan Bell came close to discovering the location of the Dolls' national loan funds. To prevent their loss of funds, the squad intercepted Bell at his usual tram stop, dragged him off the train, and shot him in broad daylight. Finally, the squad picked up Jameson from his flat and took him to an isolated spot in Glasnevin Cemetery and executed him. The British realized what they were doing wasn't working, and so looking at the auxiliaries and black and tans for inspiration, the British pulled experienced spy masters and espionage agents who had served in Germany, Russia, Poland, Holland, and Egypt, led by Colonel Hill Dillon. They were trained at a Secret Service training school in London under the guidance of MI5, by November 1920, 97 officers were in Ireland. They were deployed mostly in Dublin and were called the Dublin District Special Branch, DDSB, also known as D-Branch. They attempted to blend in, claiming they were engineers, but cover would always be a problem for them. They were supposed to recruit and handle agents and serve as inside officers, meaning they had to debrief officers, handle intelligence documents, and pass on new priorities, tasks, and equipment. The D branch was also responsible for the execution of IRA members. They technically reported to castle management and were supposed to coordinate with civil and military elements on a new central intelligence chief. But this did little to address the intelligence discrepancies between units. Despite the professionalism of these men, the IRA implemented a ruthless policy of assassination and intimidation, often shooting anyone who appeared with a British accent or considered a loyalist or ex-British army veteran without asking any questions. Sometimes the British agents would be arrested and moved to another location, often for interrogation purposes, before being executed, and other times they were gunned down in the street. These executions weren't always approved by Collins or GHQ. 
We talked about this in our 10th episode, Richard Mulcahy and the Irish War for Independence. But GHQ chose to stand by its men rather than court-martial them. This is most likely because court-martialing during a guerrilla war would have been idiotic and close to impossible, but didn't bode well for the Irish Civil War. The British reorganized castle administration, General Neville McCready as head of Irish command, General Hugh Taylor as commissioner of police, and John Anderson and James McMahon as undersecretaries at Dublin Castle. They also decided to formally approve the use of reprisals against the Irish people to turn them against the IRA. Tudor was charged with creating a central combined intelligence, which was a central command for all civil police intelligence to improve conditions between the army and the police, something they should have done in 1918, not mid-1920. Tudor gave this responsibility to Colonel Ormond de la F. Winter. He served in the 1st Field Artillery in 1894, spent 10 years in India, and served for three months as a divisional intelligence officer during Gallipoli before serving on the Western Front. He, also, he was also tried for manslaughter in 1903 for beating a youth to death with an oar. In August 1920, Parliament passed the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act, the ROIA, which suspended trial by jury, introduced the use of military courts, jurisdictions where the IRA were most active. Despite the British's efforts to reorganize the intelligence services, these groups were more focused on executions and assassinations than coordinating intelligence work. So the British actually ended up shooting themselves in the foot by focusing on reprisals instead of focusing on good counterinsurgency practices. For their part, the IRA were doing their best to keep up with the bloodshed. While the IRA units in the countryside were going toe-to-toe with the Black and Tans and auxiliaries, Collins and the squad were focused on permanently breaking British intelligence. The first step was to eliminate and discourage informers, which meant intimidation, reprisals, and executions of fellow, fellow Irishmen. The next step was eliminating dangerous British agents. For months, the IRA had been developing dossiers on British officers, and by November 1920, they felt confident enough in creating a hit list. Collins was growing fearful of of how effective the British were becoming. They had arrested Liam Tobin, Thomas Cullen, and Frank Thornton in October, and although all three were released, um, Richard Mulcahy had also almost been captured during a raid on November 10th. Collins needed to do something that would hurt British operations and prove that the IRA were not close to breaking. Collins brought a list of 35 British agents he wanted assassinated to Mulcahy and Broder. After some arguing, they trimmed the list down to 23 officers, most of whom served in D branch. After approving the assassinations, Collins, Mulcahy, and McKee planned the operation, enlisting additional men to assist the squad in their mission. On November 21st, which would become known as Bloody Sunday, Eight teams of IRA men ambushed seven separate private residences at 9 a.m. sharp. At 28 Upper Pembroke Street, the IRA shot Dowling, Price, Murray, and Montgomery, as well as an infantry commander, W.J. Woodcock. At 119 Lower Badock Street, Thomas Whelan was shot dead by a group of IRA men, which included Sean Lemus. At 28 Earl's Ford Terrace, temporary captain John Fitzgerald was killed. At 92nd Lower Badrock Street, the IRA shot Captain W.F. Newbury in front of his wife as he tried to escape outside the window. At 22nd Lower Mount Street, intelligence officer C.R. Peel survived the shooting by barricading himself in his flat. The IRA came under fire at 38 Upper Mount Street, forcing them to flee. At 117th Morehampton Road, the IRA killed Donald Lewis McLean, and his brother-in-law, T.H. Smith, while wounding ex-army officer John Caldo. 
at Gresham Hotel, two alleged spies, L.A. Wilde and Major Patrick McCormick, some historians believing in error. Not only did the IRA fail to kill a majority of its targets, but Dick McKee, Peter Clancy, and Connor Clune were picked up by the auxiliaries and were shot while in jail. The British defended their deaths by claiming they were, they were shot while trying to escape. At 3 p.m., a combined forces of auxiliaries and army troops surrounded Croke Park and shot into a daylit football game, killing 14 civilians, including one of the football players. While it is false to say that Collins's operations eradicated the British intelligence service, it was a shock that caused massive panic within the castle. If anything, it proved once and for all that the IRA were not untrained, uncoordinated massive madmen. They were armed, dangerous, efficient, and could reach the British in their own flats and shoot them in front of their own wives. When the British still didn't have a picture of Collins, that knowledge must have been chilling. The British pulled the DSB officers and special branch agents into Jury's Hotel and Hotel Central, where they were guarded day and night by armed soldiers. This was similar to the RIC pulling out of vulnerable barracks and holding up in larger barracks, allowing the IRA to entrench in positions formerly controlled by the British. Bloody Sunday was also embarrassing for the British because their officers had been so easily tracked and caught off guard. The agents who were killed practiced poor spycraft and did not act like men being targeted by hostile enemy forces. Bloody Sunday wasn't the final move that Chet made British intelligence efforts, nor did it single-handedly win the war. But it was a bloody and important moment that most likely did a lot towards convincing the British that they could not win this war. It also helps that Bloody Sunday was followed by Tom Barry's ambush. On November 28th, Tom Barry ambushed two trucks carrying 19 officers from Company C of the Auxiliaries. He killed 17 of them and wounded two more. One of the survivors suffered from severe brain damage, and the other was hunted down by local IRA scouts and executed. His body dumped in a nearby bog. Barry only suffered three men killed. The British responded by attending martial law to Cork, Tipperary, and Limerick on December 10th. On December 11th, the IRA ambushed an auxiliary unit and killed one to get and wounded 11 others. The auxiliaries responded by sacking, looting, and burning the city of Cork. Mulcahy and Broda wanted to attack the British economy in turn. At first, they considered sending a group of assassins into London to assassinate the entire British cabinet. This was once again Broder's idea, but instead opted for burning down 115 warehouses in Liverpool and Bool. The period between January 1921 and July 1921, when the truce was implemented, would be the most violent period of the war. The British intelligence consolidated itself, bringing the DSE under Winter's control, but also withstood severe criticism from Westminster. They still struggled with coordinating intelligence gathering, and many officers realized they weren't invincible and that the IRA had a long reach. They also tried to decentralize the command of ground units, reflecting the IRA's own flying columns. One infamous unit was the Idol Gang, whose goal was to stalk the streets of Dublin and search for IRA men on the run. The Idol employed cat-and-mouse tactics against the IRA, let often let themselves be chased by IRA men before ducking behind a wall or around a corner and then following the IRA man once he gave up the chase. The end green claims that it was the Idol men who were responsible for the death of Sean Treacy. The greatest contribution was making the streets of Dublin even de- deadlier. As 1921 progressed, Collins and Mulcahy were having organizational issues of their own, much of which we discussed Anglo-Irish War episodes as well as our special on Richard Mulcahy and the Irish War of Independence. Collins was also losing spies with Roy in jail and McNamara being dismissed. The news was tightening, and while the IRA were still able to fight and the leaders of the IRA were able to evade arrest, it was clear they could not win. They could only continue the war a little longer, hoping the British would blink first. 
they did. After months of peace feelers and partial negotiations, a truce was agreed upon on July 11, 1921. Collins's intelligence war against the British was over, but the organization, tactics, and men he and Mulcahy employed in their war against England would continue to be utilized during the Irish Civil War, a conflict that not only pitted them against their former comrades, but would also cost Michael Collins his life. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this episode. You can find our full catalog of episodes on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Please consider making a contribution to our Ko-fi and follow us on Twitter at AOASIMASYMWarfare and also on Instagram. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.